Hey there, this is Jay from Filmstrip dropping in to let you know you're about to hear a classic episode from our archives. Some of these shows were produced before we called the show Filmstrip Podcast, before we used popcorn ratings, uh, had the standard intro song from Frozen Lake 121, or really even knew what we were doing recording and editing the show. However, there's a lot of fun in them, and we hope you enjoy. Just wanted to let you know in case you noticed the differences. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Continuous Play's Batman Franchise Retrospective, featuring Anna McCoy. Perhaps you should read the instructions first. Jay Newcastle. I'm going to tell them the whole thing was your idea. And Brian Thomas. How about a magic trick? We will go through the plots, talk about the themes, and give our recommendations for your viewing. Continuous Play and ContinuousPlayPodcast.com is not affiliated with any movie, television, book, music, or publishing-related company. Any discussion of the plots, characters, or music from the films is done so for entertainment purposes only, and all rights are reserved. Welcome to Continuous Play Podcast Batman Retrospective Series. I'm Jay. And I'm Anna. And we are joined by a special guest for our next two episodes, Brian Thomas, who serves as our webmaster editor and the host of The Art of Slaying, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer retrospective soon to be available at ContinuousPlayPodcast.com. Welcome in, Brian. Thank you for inviting me in on this. I'm glad to have you here. And of course, if you've been with us for this series, folks, you know Anna and I have gone through Batman, Batman Returns, Batman Forever, and Batman and Robin. And we are now in for the two most recent chapters in the Batman saga. And tonight, we start with Batman Begins. Made for $150 million, gross revenue was well over 372 Came out in 2005. The film, directed by Christopher Nolan, stars Christian Bale, Michael Caine, Liam Neeson, Katie Holmes, Gary Oldman, Cillian Murphy, and the great Morgan Freeman. It's a complete reboot to the Batman series, and I'm going to go through a quick plot summary before we get into this thing. Bruce Wayne, having seen his parents murdered and learning that their killer will soon be released on a technicality, decides to take matters into his own hands only to have those plans averted by the mob. He goes into a reckless state where he abandons his home and heritage and ultimately ends in his arrest for oddly enough stealing from Wayne Enterprises and he is imprisoned in an unnamed Asian country. He meets a representative of the League of Shadows, an elite vigilante group who trains him in various fighting, interrogation, and tactical ninja styles. However, when they ask him to kill a criminal because their mission statement is to wipe the earth of criminals and ultimately they're going to Gotham City to burn it down, Bruce refuses to and in an ensuing fight burns the whole place to the ground, but he rescues his contact upon escape, a man named Descartes. Bruce returns to Gotham and with the help of the people at his company and his family friend and butler Alfred, begins to build the Batman persona while fighting against the Mafia and a dangerous villain, the Scarecrow, who plans to dump mind-altering toxins into the city's water supply. Bruce is confronted by his contact from the League, who actually reveals himself to have been the leader, who is in town to destroy the city and is in cahoots with the Scarecrow to do so. Bruce, Batman, fight the League and the leader with the assistance of police and Lieutenant Jim Gordon, and they ultimately thwart the plan of both groups, and Batman becomes the fearless hero of Gotham, and in a rooftop discussion at the end, he is given a tip on a new criminal in town 
who leaves a signature calling card in the form of the Joker playing card. But, of course, that's another story for another day. This is Batman Begins. And just from the start, before we get into too much comparison or too much plot, gang, when did you see this? What did you think when, when you saw this come out in 2005? I think my husband was waiting for this to come out. I saw it in the movies when I was actually pregnant with my first child and before we quit going to movies because we have children. But anyway, that's another story. I never saw it in the theaters and actually didn't know about it until afterwards after it came out on dvd and everybody was talking about it and so i being a fan of the original batman the adam west version and semi liking the michael keaton batman the first one i thought okay i'll give it a try because everybody says it's so different and good and it was and i'm glad i did so i bought the dvd when it came out. I will tell you, I knew nothing about them even redoing this thing until not long before it came out in the summer of 05, and I found that Christopher Nolan was doing it. I'd liked Insomnia. I'd really liked Memento, two of his previous films. I was really interested to see how he was going to do it, and I was absolutely blown away with what I saw on the screen. Yeah, th- this one is is definitely different, and I, I think we can say that from, from the beginning. It's a restart. It's a reboot, and I thought that was a bold choice because... Annie, you said at the end of Batman Forever that you thought they needed to stop there because that was a good wrap-up for everything they had done. Batman and Robin completely went off the rails. Did you agree with the idea of, of a complete reboot? You know, And how successful was the reboot, in your opinion? I think after Batman Forever, then the how I said that it should have ended there, which if they were going to do something new after that point, they should have done a reboot like Batman Begins instead of Batman and Robin. I think they absolutely should have done a reboot because they totally diluted the whole Batman thing with the, I think, the last two movies, uh, Forever and Batman and Robin. And in a sense, actually, with the the Batman Returns as well because that was such a, a dark and dreary and boring movie that, uh, they had to do it, and I'm glad they did it because this it gives a lot more of the story of, of where Batman came from that you don't get with the other movies, and I like that a lot. Yeah, and we need to say this. that you, I've said it was directed by, by Christopher Nolan, and that is very true. It was co-written by Nolan and a man named David Goyer. And folks, you, you might know David Goyer from some of his other work. He's, he's a gentleman that's been around for a while as a writer and a number of, uh, of films, he did a, a Crow movie. He's responsible for writing the Blade trilogy, if you're familiar with the Blade films. And Nolan brought him in specifically because he wanted, as he called it, a comic book geek that got Batman to be able to tell all that. Because he wasn't that. He knew of it and was aware of it. But he wanted somebody that really knew that and could bring the best things out of the multiple origin stories. And there are several comic book origin stories for Batman could bring the best elements of those and bring some really interesting villains to tie into a series. And he hit it out of the park doing it. And, and that's where we need to start the discussion of the film here. We, we open up with the origin story of Bruce. Bruce falls down a well. He's attacked by bats. And, and we see him attacked by bats. And then he wakes up and he's a prisoner in this Asian country. And that's, what, you know, everything that happens in the first act, half of it's told in flashback. And I thought that was a really neat way to tie you into the story, ultimately. Because coming into this, you had to figure most people know Bruce Wayne's Batman and he's a vigilante, essentially. I mean, you at least people would have that much meta knowledge about, you know, who Batman and Bruce Wayne were. I thought it was a great way to start the story. 
I think it was too. And I like the way the flashbacks were kind of intermittent. It wasn't like you started from the time. It started when he was little, but then it flashed back to, I suppose, the present day. And then these intermittent flashbacks would get you to, to by 45 minutes about into the movie, got you to where you needed to be. And he did a good job of doing it where it wasn't boring, like a whole big backstory, but where also it wasn't confusing and hard to follow. Now, I really like this this way to begin as well, because as a person who's not familiar with the comics, I never really got into that, and who his only perception is what we've been given from uh, pretty much the Tim Burton films and, you know, the comedy Batman series from the 19, was it, 60s. Uh, this was nice because it kind of explained a few things as far as, you know, why Bruce Wayne did the whole bat thing, falling down the well and doing all that stuff. So I, I like that part of it. And I like that. I like that it was different because he was a criminal and you don't expect your heroes to have that kind of a background. So it was an interesting twist on it. I also liked how they explained why he was a criminal, that he was going and that he actually, in a sense, learned from them that learned that sometimes they do it out of desperation, not just because they are a mean person or something like that, that sometimes they have other reasons for becoming criminals other than just that they're mean and they want to kill people for money. Okay, you've hit on something that I thought was a, a genius plot element, and I think it's something Nolan created with Goyer for for this film series. Bruce Wayne is a privileged person as a character, okay? At, at no time did I ever believe Michael Keaton or Val Kilmer or George Clooney as Bruce Wayne ever had a hard day in their life except the day his parents died, okay? But the guy never had to scrounge for a thing. All right, he chose they those people chose their path the way those characters were portrayed. This one Bruce takes it upon himself after a, a lot of things happen to go down this very dark dark place and he learns that there are a lot of motivations for why people do what they do. And it gives him it gives that character a real heart that maybe wasn't there. Uh, initially, I thought it was a genius move. That is, a, I picked right up on that too, Anna. I thought that was that was great to give him the idea. That, you know, the first time I stole something was something to eat, and I realized you know what that was like for somebody. And you show him he steals something, he winds up giving to this poor kid that's sitting there next to him. You know, you you get this idea that this guy is is really turned his back on everything that all the advantages he has. And what have we said about Batman that has set him apart so far? is that he doesn't have superpowers. He's just got super money. Now he's also got this super dark edge. I think something Bruce realized in that time as a criminal is that all the money in the world will not bring his parents back. And that's really what he wants. I don't think he wants the jet and the rolls and the sports cars and the money. I think all this poor kid wants is for his parents to come back. And not there is not enough money in the world to do that. And maybe that's a good thing Nolan did as well, trying to say that, yeah, he's never he's never hurt for anything, but all that money is not going to bring his parents back either. Yeah, I can see how that could do that to someone and, and make them turn to that kind of a path. That's a very traumatic event, and if he never really faced the trauma, I, I can see where that goes. But I agree, that's all he really wants in life is to have his folks back, and, and all of this... Th this stuff that he goes through, the criminal life, the, the stealing, the jail, it kind of helps him realize, like what Anna said, that 
that's not going to happen and he needs to move on and do something with his life. Well, guys, I don't think he wants his parents back. I think he realizes his parents aren't coming back. What he's bent on is making sure that the people responsible pay for it. And that's, you know, that was a great way to tie Jim Gordon into this story early, too. They bring Gary Oldman in to play Lieutenant Jim Gordon, who I, no, no offense to Pat Hingle, who's played him in the, the, four previous iterations they didn't give him anything to do really except stand by the the light on the roof gordon is such a neat character here and jim gordon's the guy that catches the 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 robbers that killed his parents and joe chill's the guy who killed his parents all he wants is to see those people brought to justice and when he finds out there's a chance that guy's going to get out he's bent on 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 vigilante justice he wants justice for that and he thinks that's in the form of killing them and it's his uh his lifelong friend who's also an assistant district attorney Rachel who really calls him on this you were going to go there and kill this guy what is your deal you know and she's the one that drives him underneath the you know the the bypass and down to the slums and like wake up Bruce you know we don't all live where you live and you need to see the world from a different point of view and that's really what starts that for him so i think he's he's obsessed with justice but he hasn't picked it up yet and then he goes on this this sort of journey to to find that that kind of dark place. It's a really dark place he goes into. We've explored that with Batman before. I thought of all the scripts before that really did that, well, the the Batman Forever script was the best one in terms of exploring the psyche of what this would be like for someone. And you brought up a good point, Brian. This has got to be a traumatic event for this kid. But the way he handles it, I never got that he wanted his parents back. I thought he just wanted justice. But he didn't really understand what that was until he went on this until he became a criminal himself. True. I guess I still think he wants his parents back. I mean, what kid doesn't? I think it's one of those things where your mind knows they're not coming back, but your heart still wants them back. You know what I you know what I mean? I think that's how he's feeling, which probably leads to the vigilante justice. Is that in his mind he knows they're never coming back. I'm with I'm going to be without them the rest of my life. But I think deep down inside that's all he wants. He doesn't want the house, he doesn't want the cars, he doesn't want the money. He just wants his parents back, but I think he's a practical enough person that he's like, okay, they're never coming back. But he can't, and like you said, Jay, he can't really move past that until Rachel kind of snaps him out of it. I liked how they tied the the corruption and the mafia into this so early on. You know, we've talked about that, Anna, as a theme. Brian, you've noticed that. You're the one that edits these podcasts. That that's been a running theme. That's a running theme throughout Batman and through Gotham City, this idea of this corrupt city. And and how corrupt it is that that ultimately is part of his entire story. And he and his father have this whole conversation about it on the, the train ride to the opera when he's a young boy. You know, he said, well, you know, I'm a doctor. I help people, son. You know, other other better men run the company that, you know, is our company. But we try to help people, you know. And we're, we're here to make a difference for in, in people's lives. Understanding, though, that there's corruption going on that's way beyond what Wayne could ever affect and would ever know about. And then Bruce is now, he, he, it's one of, uh, uh, Falcone, who's the big head mafia guy in, in town. One of his, you know, gang kills Chill before, uh, uh, Bruce has a chance to when he comes back. And Bruce goes into a place where, where he knows Falcone's gonna be. And he confronts him and the guy just sits there and chews him up. Like, you know, I could, I could have fed you to the fishes twice. Boy, you don't have any idea what you're getting into. And it's the first time I felt like Bruce Wayne, is somebody who he has no idea what he's getting into. It's the first time he felt vulnerable to me as a character in a film. 
Well, I love that scene, the one you're talking about with Falcone. With um, basically Tom Wilkinson, who plays Falcone, was reading him the right, you know, reading him the right act. Like you don't know what you're talking about. You're just some stupid kid. Like you don't know what you're up against. Look, I've got judges, cops, and lawyers, and everybody in between in here, and I'd shoot you. You just don't know what you're up against. And I think that also, along with um, Rachel kind of telling them to snap out of it, is kind of what woke him up and Bruce was like, I need to get out of here. I need to. And I think even in that scene, Falcone says something like you're, you're Bruce Wayne, the crown prince of Gotham. You'll have to go at least a thousand miles before anybody, even a thousand miles away from here before anybody even knows, doesn't know your name. So I think that, I think that whole conversation really hit home with him and is what sent him on this journey. It's also a great plot device to make the next seven years of what happens where he's traveling the world and he's basically a petty criminal of why that would work, mm-hmm. you know? I agree. I, I really like this scene, too. I wrote down that, that this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And really the the quote that I pulled out of here the best was when he looks at him and says, uh, says to Bruce Wayne, he says, this is a world that you'll never understand and you always fear what you don't understand. I thought that was a great line. That's straight from the Batman mythos, you know, the idea, why don't you, you know, what makes people afraid of bats is you don't know what they, you don't understand these creatures. They don't operate like normal creatures do, you know, and and we've also built this whole mystique around the vampire bat and all this. It's why it strikes fear and it's, it's one of the elements that makes it work. And I'm going to tell y'all, we're 20 minutes into this movie at this point. We're in a Batman movie, and it feels like it could be any kind of crime drama in the world. It's such a different take, and it was so neat the way they launched into this, and it's those kind of conversations that really drive this plot and make it work. And it's what what makes you believe that Bruce Wayne could open, could wake up in the, an Asian prison, you know, uh, uh, and that they would separate him from everybody else, not for his safety, but for everybody else's safety. You know, how did we get that guy here? And they give you this story, and it's so great. And, you know, Christian Bale plays it so perfectly, too. I mean, it's, it's such a neat, you get the idea that he's tortured and that he's hurting, it, but he's also, he's, he is a bad dude, too. I mean, he can hold his own, and it, and it's a neat way to, to introduce that character who has this raw potential that's not yet unlocked. And then enter in Ducard, played by Liam Neeson, who, I want to tell you, Liam Neeson always gets to play like the the good guy and the uh, the mentor to all these people. But now he gets to play a dude with an edge. And it's so cool. I You know, haven't seen movies more recently, his like Taken and things like that, where he's got this dark edge. Liam Neeson can play both sides of the coin so well, but he's never really played a guy that was that was straight up shady like Henry Ducard. Uh, but Liam Neeson, no matter what he's doing, is a very good, he's a very good actor. Just like Christian Bale and Michael Caine and most of the people in this movie. There, he The cast is just very accomplished. And that was something that I was really impressed with this movie. And I think has made the movie um, better than other incarnations. Bruce goes off on this, uh, as we said, we, we get his whole story of how he's a criminal. I did think it was a funny thing that, like, they're giving him the business about, you know, and the guy that owns this stuff isn't going to appreciate that you stole from him. And it's his. Main enterprises. It's his stuff, you know, which is, but you know what? I mean, it made sense. It also sets up this mystique that Wayne Enterprises is a multinational, huge global conglomerate that would have reach everywhere. 
and how could the the crown prince of Wayne Enterprises, you know, get in trouble? I did like they put him in prison. They get him in this fight, and and again he whips everybody so much that they've got to separate the rest of the prisoners from him. And then we, we bring Descartes in, who says he's with a group called the League of Shadows, and you know they're they're going to you know fight crime, and he he knows who Bruce is, and he wants to bring him in, and and I love that you know. Anna, you and I talked a lot about uh, in a previous film series about the montage. We once again we get a montage, you know. But this training montage to me was so cool because it was it was ninja stuff and it was it was karate and it was I mean it was all kinds of stuff. They taught this guy how to basically be James Bond and Snake Eyes at the same time. They set something up with the fighting and with all the training here that I really liked. And it's this idea that, you know, we've talked about it before. Batman's got to have gadgets and gear, right? Because he doesn't have strength or power. Or maybe he's got strength, but he doesn't have, like, superpowers, right? He's not getting bitten by spiders or, you know, the sun gives him his power. He swims underwater like a fish. This guy's got to have stuff. But they create the stuff as part of his whole ninja gear, you know, the bat forearm shin uh, guards and stuff that those come from the league of shadows and the the ninja tactics the way he can hide and then the the exploding powder they gave everything a realistic counterpart it's cool how all the bat gadgets have a realistic tie-in now i i think it's great how not just the gadgets but everything has a tie-in it's like not like we when we talked about the first batman where it just kind of appears and fights we understand why he fights and how he fights and how he learns to do that. Because, I mean, you, you know, you just can't have no training, like no boxing, no karate, no anything, and then go in and start fighting criminals or something like that. Or you can't just walk right out of college and like, oh, I'm an FBI agent without going to some kind of training or something. So I think that, I think all in all, not just the gadgets, but everything, his, his fighting, his, persona his gadgets everything has it i think it's cool that everything has an origin i really enjoyed the training scenes in this movie it, you know it gives you a good look at how liam neeson's character he's you know got one up on bruce all the time and then slowly you start to see bruce getting better and better and better to the final test where he's put in a hallucinogenic material and he has to then go through hundreds of these guys dressed the same and try to find liam neeson and I thought that was a really, really cool thing. And it also, you know, obviously comes in handy later in the movie. Yeah, and again, this is such a tight script, and I give I give it a lot of credit. Christopher Nolan films, if you've seen any of his other films, the the scripts are very tight. But even David Goyer, and I, I know a lot of people are kind of eh, on Blade here and there, and I'll, I'll tell you, I knew nothing of Blade, the comic version. I love the Blade films. They're such tight little scripts, and they work so well. I, th- I credit them for writing a tight screenplay and something that really we're gonna. I mean, we're gonna bring something in at Act One, and we're gonna pay it off in Act Three, and it's gonna be a big thing. It's gonna be something obvious that you'll remember. It's not some subtle thing. I mean, it's really cool. It, it it's how it all works. I also loved how they they go through this test with Bruce, and they they give him your final test is you've got to behead this guy because he's a criminal and he's never gonna rehabilitate be rehabilitated. You're gonna leave this army of super ninjas into Gotham City and we're gonna burn it to the ground. And Bruce. They ask him to do it, and he walks away from it. And he's like, no, there's there's a greater good. You can fight crime by not killing. And that sets off the big fight there in the, uh, I guess, a monastery. I don't know what it is. In, like, the big barn place. And 
all hell breaks loose, you know, because he basically takes out that whole room of guys by himself just by what he's learned in those uh, short few weeks. But I love the idea that he would refuse to kill that criminal. I thought that was a, a big character moment. Well, I thought that really showed compassion is what I thought. it, And I also wondered what you think that that says about Bruce and about his convictions and stuff. And after I thought about it for a little bit, I think it's saying that these people seem to think that the world is black and white. You're a criminal. You died. There's no such thing as rehabilitation. Whereas I think Bruce always believes that, that there's a little gray area that. Well, he's been a, he's been a criminal, right? So he, he now understands things a little differently and that there's justice and then there's giving people a chance. Right. Right. I agree. I don't know that Batman never kills. I think he will kill if he absolutely has to, but he won't kill just to kill. Yeah. Well, okay, that, that that's a good way to say it, because that was my big complaint in, in Batman Returns, especially is he just starts whacking the, the the Penguin's people for almost nothing. You know, it's not it's not like a major character he takes out. That that always bothered me because I never took Batman as that. It's it's not kill just for the sake of killing. And he'd rather have them face justice in a court system than have him be a vigilante on them. Yeah, it's it's definitely a a change of events, and it's a great way to set up that there's a difference between him and this League of Shadows group. And, I, and, and again, that the fight is great in the battle. The the leader Ra's al Ghul is is killed in the battle. But Bruce saves an unconscious Ducard, and he basically drops him off at the you know first village to the left. But he's like, you know, just tell him, uh, you know, I'm I'm gone or whatever. And you you think that's all over with, and he comes back to uh, to life essentially in Gotham with a renewed sense of purpose. And a lot's changed in seven years for Bruce. Now you know he's uh, the 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 city is as corrupt as ever, and his company is getting ready to go public so that you know they're going to be traded on the stock exchange and he's just coming back and trying to find his way in the world but he, automatically you get the idea he's got something else up his sleeve yeah and he comes in kind of different when you see him leave he's this you know after he talks to falcone and after he goes to the trial um you see him when he leaves he's a kid for one because i think don't they say he just came back from princeton for that trial or something yeah, he had left Princeton to to come back for that uh, that trial. Yeah, so you see him basically as this kid, and he he comes back to life. Like when he goes to um, Wayne Enterprises to meet with the board, he cleans himself up, and he comes back with this whole new persona. Like he's this confident and kind of cocky billionaire playboy. He comes back with this whole persona, and I can't see that persona coming from the kid who met with Falcone. Yeah, with not having gone through everything he'd gone through. Right. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, if they just turned that on a dime and then, like, seven years later, like, if he'd have walked off in the alley and then seven years later that had happened, it would have felt cheap. But in this case, it feels well-earned. Yes. But that also means he he's not the same Bruce they knew when he left. One of my uh, another favorite scene is when he walks into the boardroom, or actually walks in with the uh, secretary, and she says to him, "Can I help you?" And he says, "Yes, I need to speak with the board." And he goes, "Can I tell him who's here?" And he says, "Bruce Wayne." And she looks like, "Whoa, what the heck? You know, what are you doing here?" And I like the fact that he's trying to teach her how to, yeah, like yeah trying I to like teach her how too. to golf when the uh, <laughs> what's what's the main guy's name? I can't even remember. 
That is uh, William Earl uh, Rutger Hauer. I like how how Rutger comes out like, "Why are you not answering my call?" And then all of a sudden he looks, he goes, "Oh, Bruce!" Changes into a cordial gentleman, and I thought that was pretty good. I, I like that scene. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the, the CEO is going to bow to the the whims of the billionaire playboy, you know, who still owns the company even though they're going public, you know, and and I love how Bruce says, you know, I just want to, I just want to work here, man. I just need a job, and I, I want to be a part of this, and I want applied sciences. He's already worked it out in his own head that I've got to have something or somebody help me build stuff that doesn't exist right now that's military grade quality that I can go and fight crime with. He's already worked that out in his head. And I love that. And that's where we bring in Morgan Freeman's character, Lucius Fox, who was a former board member. He's been kind of just forced into the dungeon, basically. But he develops all this stuff that is basically just prototyped gadgets for the military, but it's too expensive to, you know, mass produce. But it's it's all the bat gear. You know, it's the suit or it's what becomes the suit. It's all the, 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 you know, the belt gadgets and all that stuff. You know, there's, a, there's that running joke on how it should have ended. You know, the, the animated series and stuff that, you know, yeah, you know, I, I, I would have had some nuclear missile bat gadget, you know, and Superman's always like, dude, you use that utility belt way too much. And that is a thing for Batman. He always seems to have a gadget, but where did all that come from? And, and again, that's a plot element. We've set all this up that all this stuff is real. We just got to give it a place to have an origin. So, and Lucius has always been kind of the cue of the Batman world. For those that don't know, I mean, that's his his role as, as a character. It always was. And Morgan Freeman is, you're talking about the mentor, grandfatherly character. I think that's every character he plays and has played his whole career. Because um, the man's looked 70 since he was 40. You know, but but he plays it so well. And he's got that dry humor and that delivery. And it, it's so neat. And, and I love this idea that Bruce has discovered the Batcave, which essentially was the well he fell down when he was younger. And it's on his property with... He's discovered that with Alfred, and he's looking for gear to go spelunking in. But he's really looking for stuff that he can go fight in. And the bat suit is something they prototyped. And the best part of that, and Brian, I know you love this, because you and I were, were watching this at the same time, and we're texting back and forth about it uh, in pre- preparation for this podcast, was the, the whole Tumblr scene. He's like, what's that thing? He's like, oh, you would be interested in that. And then they get in the, you know, the big arena, and he's driving around the coolest idea for a Batmobile ever. I mean, up to this point, the Batmobile has basically been a tricked-out-looking Corvette. Now it is this tank. I think they did a good job because it looks like a very early version of the Batmobile. But also, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say this. I was thinking as I was watching that part and watching some of the subsequent parts after that. Doesn't anybody figure out all this stuff is coming from Wayne Enterprises? That's a good point. You you make a, a good argument there. Is it, what would be the only company that could create this stuff? Right, right. I mean, I know it's all prototypes and stuff, but in, in the next movie, we'll kind of see somebody kind of figure it out. But in this movie, I'm just like, I'm like, there, because the, at the scene where the cops are asking what it looks like and stuff, and I'm like, isn't there a reporter or something that's going to figure out these come from Wayne Enterprise? I'll say this, in the Batman world, that's the Clark Kent glasses. It's the idea that you can't recognize the lower half of this guy's face. Well, you know, because he's wearing the too. cowl. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get to the voice in a second, but yeah, but yeah, the, the idea that yeah, this would come from somewhere. You know, if that's the one thing we got to give it, I think we can. But I'm, I'm with you, Anne. I was wondering, you know, that that's got to only come from one place. 
my take on that is that you know these are all prototype devices, and there's only a very few people who've ever seen them. And those are the people who are in charge of making the device in the first place. So they've seen the prototype. So you got maybe five guys from the military and then the people from Wayne Enterprises. I'm guessing the people from Wayne Enterprises aren't paying a whole lot of attention to Batman. They're trying to get this company public. They don't really care. The military is not going to say much because these are things that never actually got put into place. They're not going to admit that they had hired Wayne Enterprises to build on this machine or these, you know, Teflon or whatever the heck they they had, they're not going to admit that. So the only people who know are really either not paying attention or they're secretive. So they're not going to come out and say, oh, that came from Wayne Enterprises. And I guess you could argue that they like, because this is military prototypes and they don't want to sell them to like Iran or Russia or something, that they may have to sign like a confidentiality clause or something. When they're doing it, I, I mean, you can argue, but still, I'm like, there's got to be somebody out there who realizes they come from Wayne Enterprise, but I guess that's just nitpick. Well, you know, they, they did, and you already alluded to it, they do play with that in the next film, and we, we'll talk about that when we, when we get to it. That night, you know, uh, Bruce has built this experimental armor suit. He basically takes this, this armor suit that'll, It'll take anything but a straight shot, essentially. I mean, it can deflect stuff. It's just really expensive. It's like a big diving suit slash armor suit. And he, he spray paints it and he and Alfred construct the, the bat cow by ordering parts from two places. I mean, they give it this very untraceable, you know, way to catch stuff. And I really liked it. You know, Alfred's always been kind of the guy that outfits everything in the Batman films and, and he's a, he's a big part of this and, and they're building this together and Bruce you know, is the one that comes up with, well, you know, the thing that scared me has always scared me my whole life are bats. So I think I'm just going to dress up like a huge bat, you know, and, and they, he builds like a throwing star out of a bat or like a silver bat. Anyway, he, he puts this whole thing together. And that night he finds out about an illegal drug shipment that, that is coming in. Batman comes in and basically just wipes out this, a bunch of Falcone's guys. He and, and of course we have to have the moment where he goes, "I'm Batman," and he grabs Falcone up out of the out of the limo. He's like, "What is that?" And he's like, "I'm Batman." And I want to say this: uh, I love Christian Bale's performance here, except for that stupid voice. I'm like, man, I just I get I get the idea that he needs to disguise his voice. I always just I just laugh when he starts talking in Batman voice. Oh, I like his voice, the Batman voice. I agree. I like it. I like his voice too. I, yeah, I like it. I think it's um, it, like you say, he has to disguise it. It's 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 different than previous incarnations, and I guess we'll get into that later. But I think it's it's harder to tell. I, I can believe with his voice that it's harder to tell who his real identity is versus maybe like Michael Keaton's voice or something. But I think I think he does a good job. I, I like the voice. It's something I would expect. Batman to have, and I think he, I think it, it's a real, I think it's really good, and it just adds to his performance. I agree with Anna 100% on that. I, I think the voice is really good, and, and it does help just, you know, put him away. There's certain people you would think could recognize through it, but, you know, for the most part, I like that he gives himself a different voice, because otherwise it's too obvious, and that's a trick that a lot of these superhero films fall into, is that they don't really disguise themselves other than, like, Clark Kent and his glasses and whatnot. It's kind of dumb. But my favorite part of that whole thing is not what it, right after he says, I'm Batman, he looks at the guy in the corner, who's the homeless guy he gave his coat to years earlier, and says, nice coat. I thought that was awesome. 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> he comes right back. Yeah, they come back and pay that off again. Again, a good, elements of the tight script, you know. Falcone's in jail. Uh, of course, we find out his his childhood friend Rachel is is an assistant district attorney, and um, she, of course, is is going to be a part of this prosecution. But we meet another character here, and that's Doctor Jonathan Crane. And I want to say this: if you've never seen Cillian Murphy in things, I, there's a great movie out there called Red Eye that he's in with with um, uh, Rachel McAdams. You need to see that, folks. It's probably the best thing Wes Craven's done in 25 years. Uh, it, it's a it's a great thriller. He can play this. You know something's wrong with this guy, but you don't know what yet. He is so good as Dr. Jonathan Crane. He's the chief psychiatrist at Arkham Asylum. But he's also, you get the, the sense of the little setup with Rachel is that he, he has people declared insane that are basically part of the mob so he can have them at the asylum and then let them go. You, he's in on this drug shipment and you learn that he is planning to use a, a he's planning to sell a dose of toxins in, or put a dose of toxins into the, the city's water, that the same kind of toxins that Bruce was under the influence of when he was training with the League of Shadows. And he even hits him with some of it. And it basically, uh, Crane comes in and he hits people with this toxin and it drives them insane with fear. And he hits Falcone with it and basically just drives him nuts, you know. It was such a neat character. Now, it's also the first kind of really supernatural comic book thingy that we've introduced into this beyond anything else we've done. Everything else has been so realistic. This one was a little different, but I liked how they played it. I really liked Cillian Murphy, and I liked how they brought Crane into the story. Well, I think it's good because we've said before that one of the, and we'll probably get into this more detail, but one of the problems with Batman and Robin is that they had kind of second-rate villains because they'd already used all the cool villains for the first couple of movies. I think they did a good job with this by using a quote-unquote second-rate villain in the first movie to get it established instead of using, like, the Joker or the Riddler or Two-Face or Catwoman or something. I think that was very smart in the reboot to do that because it does, because this is the beginning movie. You don't need um, a Joker. You don't need a Riddler. You just need a, any villain. And that, and it, it, the way the script was written and stuff too, you didn't need that A-list villain. You could go with a C-list villain in the movie be just fine. I think that was very smart on their part as well. I really enjoyed the Crane character because he's so nonchalant and, and you know, Rachel obviously suspects something's going on and he, she tries to confront him numerous times and he's just like, you know, whatever, you know, think what you want. Uh, that guy's insane if you ask me and, and that's what my opinion is, so deal with it. And I like that and I like how he's so calm when, especially in the Falcone scene where uh, he basically just, Falcone's ticking him off so he goes, would you like to see my mask? And then just pulls it out and, and gives it to him. And I just, I like how he's just so calm while he's getting ready to scare these people. Yeah. And, and, and he gives Rachel a dose of this stuff and, and Batman is able to save her while he's also under the influence. And Fox is able to come up with an antidote for it that cures it. But he really, you know, Bruce automatically realizes this is going to be a bigger problem. We got to put this thing into mass production. And, and that becomes a big part of the story as, as it goes forward. I liked too that 
you know, you mentioned a point there, Anna, that they, they brought a B or a C-list villain in and stuff like that. Scarecrow's a pretty big villain, but you know what? I, you're right. This movie isn't about the villains, and I feel like for the first time in the Batman franchise, we got a Batman movie that's not about the villains. All right, Batman, the first Batman, you could argue, was really about the Joker and also Batman, all right? The second one, it's clearly all about the villains. It's about Catwoman, Penguin, and, and Christopher Walken's made-up character Shrek, all right? And then the third film is all about the Riddler, all right? We've got Two-Face in there, too, but he's really just a side point to Jim Carrey, all right? It's not about Bruce. There's a lot of Bruce Wayne psychology stuff, but it's really about the Riddler. And the fourth one, who the heck knows what that's about? I guess it's about Arnold Schwarzenegger and his stupid lines and Mr. Freeze, you know, whatever, but... but this is the first one where I feel like it's not so much about the villains. It's that these are where the villains come from and how they all tie together. But this is about Batman and Batman beginning. So it's a lot of Batman and it's a lot of Bruce Wayne. And I really liked that they stuck to that. It was like a central thesis for the whole thing. And it really made the plot drive. Oh, I, I agree with you. That's what I think, too. That's what I think, too. I think... um like, you said it better than I did. It, this movie isn't about the villains. It's about Batman. So, therefore, they didn't need an A-list. Or I, I don't know if the Scarecrow's not an A-list villain, but he is not as well-known as something like the Riddler or the Joker. Yeah, I'm glad that they didn't bring the Joker in right away because you really do have to establish Batman and, and how he's going to fight his crime. And you don't want him to to go up against someone as well-known or popular as the Joker right away. So I agree. Scarecrow is a good pick for them to use, and Falcone as well. Yeah, and I love how they're going to tie these groups together with the League of Shadows group. You know, Bruce is having a, a birthday at, at Wayne Manor, and, and he has this great fight with Alfred, basically, about how we got to get these people out of here. i got to worry about this antidote and these drugs and all this stuff that's coming in. And, and Alfred just gives it to him. He said, no, 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 no. Those are, you know, Bruce Wayne's friends out there, and you and your, you've got to protect your father's name and the, the names of everybody that came before him, and you just can't blow this off because now you want to go out and fight crime. You've got responsibility. I love that they gave Alfred a strong role in this, and I thought that a lot of that stems from the idea that Michael Caine is in this and, and the, the strength he brings to the Alfred role, but I loved how it's Alfred who really is the one that keeps Bruce in line and he's reminding them, look, you may think you're hot stuff because you've been off in Tibetan prison or whatever, but I'm still, you know, your guardian. I know what's best for you and you're going to go out there and be a part of this. I really love that. Well, I think also it was more of a, um, this is kind of the turning point to me in, in the, in the series so far, well on the movie between the old Bruce Wayne and the new Bruce Wayne slash Batman. I think this is kind of the turning point where he almost has to choose, like, okay, are you going to be kind of like this corporate symbol, like your family raised you to be, or are you going to be like this this vigilante justice fighter that you were trained to be, and at this point you need to make your decision? And this was kind of the point where we've mentioned before in the previous ones where trying to reconcile Batman to Bruce Wayne, I think this is the point where he was almost forced to reconcile Batman to Bruce Wayne. I think that's an interesting take, but I looked at it as more of Alfred kind of telling him, hey, you know, you're Batman, that's great, but you need to keep that under wraps, and if you start acting out of character for Bruce Wayne, 
people are going to start figuring things out that something's not right. And so you need to get down there and act like Bruce Wayne. And after you're done acting like Bruce Wayne, you can go back to being Batman. That's a good point, too. Yeah, I think it works on on both levels. I think it's a very realistic and simple level that you've got a you've got a reputation to uphold here, as even if it is just a fake one. And it is a turning point. It it is a you know I, I felt like it wasn't until after the fight at the mansion that we first really got Batman. I felt like it was Bruce in the Batman costume, and he says he's Batman and all that, but he really figures out how to do this in this final fight. And I want to tell you, you know, this film is is a ride, okay? I mean, it, it hasn't stopped since it started, and it's about to get into overdrive, because who shows up at Wayne Manor but Ra's al Ghul, and it's not the, you know, the, the Asian man you saw in the barn who died, it's actually the character Ducard, played by Liam Neeson. He, you know, that was a stand-in to hide his own identity. You know, again, the idea that the villains would do the same thing Bruce would do. You'd have a secret identity. He shows up to confront him, and he's telling him, look, I'm here to burn down, you know, Gotham, and I'm here to take you out, too. And I thought, you know what? This that lets you know that Bruce has gotten to this guy in a way that nobody else ever has because he's his mission is to come and destroy Gotham City, all right? And he's gone through some trouble to set up how to do it, but he's going to take time out of his day and time out of his plan to bring his ghouls in to take Bruce Wayne out at his home. I love that. I thought it was really smart script movement. It was. It was. It was. Um. Really good. And I have to say, there is, since we're coming up on the end of the movie, there is so much going on in this movie. And maybe I'm just being a typical girl and I'm not doing the whole comic book thing. But I, I've seen this movie at least 20 times. And granted, I haven't seen it in a long period of time. But there was stuff that I've caught on this time watching it that I didn't catch like the previous, you know, previous 20 times because there's just so much there's so much going on like you can watch this over and over and get something different this is a dense movie i think you're dead on and they and like i said they haven't stopped to let you no. breathe yet and and they're really not about to I, I but yeah it's a dense film bruce decides he's gonna just basically be the obnoxious drunk playboy and get everybody out of his house, all right? And it's, you know, thank you all for showing up and freeloading off of me and, you know, with friends like you who need suck-ups. And, I mean, he's just a complete jerk. But I want to tell you, I, I was sitting there watching that going, man, Christian Bale can, can act. And you know that because he turned that on a dime. And it was such a neat performance. And I realized that was probably shot in 20 different angles, a hundred over 10 hours. But it was a great set of, it was a great set of lines. It was a great delivery. And it, it gave you, it, you know, if he's going to run everybody out of his house, how would Bruce Wayne run everybody out of his house? He'd be a complete obnoxious rich jerk to everybody. And, and he is. And it also proves to you how important Bruce Wayne is. Because he can act like that, and people will just leave and let it go. Yeah, that's true. But that um, just fits into his persona. It fits in. And I think you were saying about Christian Bale's acting. I think he did. I think Michael Keaton did it maybe the second best. But I think he did the eccentric millionaire playboy better than anybody has, which is good because this is Batman Begins, so we're going to see a lot of Bruce. 
Wang. Yeah, I, I think he did a very good job, and I like how they wrote it too. Always showing up with more than one girl on his arm, showing off his fancy toys. If he doesn't get his way, he buys the place, those kind of things. And this is just another great air, uh, part of his persona too by just saying, you know, get out of my house. Quit robbing me of my money. <laughs> yeah. And, and then the, you know, the big fight goes down. He and Ra's men are all, all fighting, but at the same time, these men are releasing inmates at Arkham Asylum and they're, they're turning this hallucinogen into the atmosphere. So it's making the crazy even more crazy. And it's making the citizens that live on like the, the worst part of town, you know, uh, hallucinating. There's, I mean, it's just bedlam going on. And at the same time, Bedlam's going on at Wayne Manor. They're burning the place to the ground. And I, I want to tell you, the idea of destroying Wayne Manor after they've set it up as this very important historical six generations of Waynes have lived here, place, and they just burn the sucker down. It, it lets you know that, folks, nothing is sacred. When you're, when you're gonna, if you're gonna buck the system and fight crime, you gotta be willing to pay the price for it. And the price is Bruce Wayne's history. It's all burning down. And I think, you know, maybe I'm reading too much in the obvious here, but I think this is the moment when the game changes now because the old Bruce and all that stuff is now gone. And it's not about the stuff. It's about getting justice and doing the right thing to protect people from that moment on. I really liked how that worked. Now, let me ask you this. is um, In the comic book, does Wayne Manor ever burn down? Ooh, is there a I don't, point where it burns down, or is this something just a plot device for this script? I believe it's a plot device just for this script. I can't remember it ever being burned down in the, the stuff I've read. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if it's not out there somewhere. I hate to jump off on that because I can't remember, but I don't think it was ever burned down. There have been attacks on it, but I, I always, from what I remember, Anna, this is something that, like Rachel Dawes character is invented for this script and and like the way they're using the League of Shadows the League of Shadows in the comic books y'all are basically eco terrorists but now they've turned into a vigilante group it's a way to bring something in from that world and use it in a different way it's what makes the the script work and smart we can take stuff from the comics but we can make it work in our own way so i think it's something they just invented for this and again i you know Christopher Nolan's all about psychological interventions in your life change things. And that's what we've seen with Bruce so far. And this is another one. You know, we've got to burn down everything he's known to get him to the point where he's ready to really go against these people because, and that's another reason maybe the Scarecrow and Falcone are the villains in this, this league are the villains here is there. He's not ready for the big villain yet. You know, he's got to start somewhere and that's, that's this group. And Brian, what did you, what did you take it as? I don't know. I like that. They, they burned it down because it, there's no one else who's going to burn it down, really, because they don't know who, who Batman is. But this guy knows Bruce Wayne, and he's going after him because he basically burned his place down. So it was, And I like the line where he says, you burn my place, I burn yours. Call us even. Exactly. It's this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, this, this Old Testament judgment that this guy's all about. It, yeah. There's a great line there, too, because Bruce is trapped underneath a, a support beam that's on fire, and Alfred comes to try and help, and he obviously can't. So he looks at him and he goes, what's the point of all these sit-ups if you can't lift a simple log? <laughs> I love that line. That That is a good line. That is a, again, it shows you how smart they are. They, You know, 
they're not going to let you find something to nitpick in this. You know, it's they they even write it in. It's, I I'm all I, I mean, there's no proof to it. But I'm almost certain at some point they're like, you know, we should have like a line about how he can't lift that off of himself. You know, and and make a joke out of it, and it gives. It adds some humor to a very tense situation. Again, this film's a big ride. It's been on this real emotional and physical movement since it started, but it's got humor laced in between. It's what makes it work. Um, Wayne Manor's destroyed. Bruce escapes the inferno. Rachel's able to deliver the antidote to, to Gordon. Uh, Fox has been sent off to, to mass produce it, and they're trying to ward off Crane, who's, who's, uh, uh, now out as the scarecrow, she hits him with a taser, and it was a way to get rid of him and get him off of the story. I kind of felt weird about that because I really wanted to see some end come to his part of it, but I know they do it in the second film, but I wanted to see something else happen there, but I loved how he's having a, a hallucination himself, and he sees Bruce dropping down over the city, and it's this, you know, Bruce has got these red eyes, and he's just this ferocious looking thing and when somebody's tripping out and they see Batman they don't see Bruce Wayne they see this black faced like vampire looking demon thing and I mean it was so cool yeah where the, he's kind of like oozing this black blood yeah. out of his mouth yeah it's yeah. scary looking it's the first time Batman's ever been scary I think I was going to say to me it looked like uh, he's oozing maggots out of his mouth just black maggots yeah, I, I don't know what all was going on, but it was definitely a dark, dark, dark place. And in the middle of all of this, before going after Ra's al Ghul, who essentially what's happened is they put this hallucinogen in the water supply, and Ra's al Ghul has stole a device. They, they, they told this earlier in the film that a device was stolen that was developed by Wayne Enterprises that basically will flash boil and vaporize you know, a million, hundred million gallons of water at once. He's stolen this from Wayne Enterprises. He's going to drive it into the, the city's water supply, which happens to feed an all hub from underneath the Wayne Enterprises building, and he's going to set it off there to, you know, all these hallucinogens are in the water, and when he vaporizes it, it's going to turn the whole city on itself, and basically it'll burn itself down. That's what Roz is going to do, and before he goes to do that, he turns around and he uh, reveals his identity to Rachel, but he doesn't pull off the mask, he doesn't do the dramatic uh, chipmunk or prairie dog turn that you know, Michael Keaton loved to do in Batman Returns. It, it's it, He lays a line on her that she laid on him. You know, it's again, he repeats part of the script. It's another part where we've got characters repeating script lines to each other to reveal who they are to one another. And I thought it was really smart and really neat. And it's it, it, her reaction is that, you know, immediately she knows who this is. Yeah. Yeah. There was a little something in there, too. Yeah. The line was, uh, it's not who you are underneath. It's what you do that defines you. It was a great line and it really worked well for the character in the moment there. We get the big fight with him on the train with Liam Neeson. And I want to tell you something. I've been waiting for this the whole film. I remember seeing this in the theater. And when he jumped on that train and Liam Neeson turned around and looked at him, I was like, oh, it is on. <laughs> you know, it, it is time. And they let those two go at each other in a way that you felt like, you know, all these montage movies where the trainer is training the, you know, the new person. And all you really want to see is these two people really go at each other again, you know? You finally get to see, you know what? I'm not going to take it easy on you now. It's on. And and I love the fight on the train. It was a confined space with these two larger-than-life you know, characters, and they have to duke it out basically on a subway. Well, what I liked about it is I think it was a very satisfying way for them to meet and duke it out and eventually 
like in the movie, but I think it was a very satisfying beginning to the ending. In, indeed. And they bring Gordon into this too. You know, there's that whole bit where he, he gives Gordon the keys to the tumbler and he says, can you drive stick? You know? And he's like, I just need you to take out the train tracks. And Gordon gets in the Batmobile and he's like, what, what am I supposed to do? You know? And he's trying to figure out how to drive this thing. But he's part of the, the element there. He blows the tracks by shooting the rockets off of it. And, and Batman has finally got Roz in, in his position. And they had that great conversation there. LeBron, what's the line he lays on him about how I, I don't have to kill you, but I can't save you? What, what was that? I think that's exactly what he said. I don't have to kill you, okay. but I don't need to save you either. Yeah, and he yeah. he shoots the batarang up, and he basically you know springs from the train, and and that's you know Liam Neeson's character. I loved how they let him die. He didn't have the shocked look or anything. He's like, I was outsmarted by my pupil. So he closes his eyes and he just leans back and just waits for the the crash and the explosion. So basically, Batman saves the day by blowing up the you know, having the train crash, and it 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 keeps the uh, the water from being vaporized, and then. You know, they're able to control, they, they can uh, neutralize the toxins by just pumping it through the water system and they never become, uh, you know, they never turn the city on its head. I, I love that ending scene. It was a great end to what had been a roller coaster ride of a film before we get to the end of it. I, I liked it too. Like I said before, it's, it's a very satisfying end. And like, and like you said, I think Liam Neeson added something to that with that calm, not like the shock look, like, oh my God, I'm going to die and crash. But this very calm presence, like, I, I've been outsmarted. Um, you know, I've made my bed, now I have to lie in it kind of thing. And I think it I think it was just a very satisfying. I think we've said this with a couple of them in, in the previous incarnations, that the ending wasn't very satisfying. It was just a whole lot of fighting and then, oops, one of the villains trips and falls off a building or something. <laughs> This this was satisfying. Yeah, I I don't have a whole lot to add to that other than I agree that I think the 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 cool thing with having Ra's al Ghul just kind of sit back and take it in as this is my end moment. It look, almost looks like he's meditating as he's going down, but I like that. I thought it was a nice touch to have it end that way. Yep. Batman becomes a public hero. Bruce gains control of his company. And, and fires, you know, Earl, Mr. Earl played by, you know, Rutger Howard and puts Lucius Fox in charge as the CEO. And I love how he does it because, you know, Earl's telling him early on, you know, the, how the company's going public. It's all kind of technical, you know, how it's being bought up. And he goes in there, how, how did you gain control? He said, Oh, I bought it through private trusts and different companies. It's all a bit technical, but all you need to know is that the company's future is safe. And it's a great idea too, because it gives another, it's another touch of realism as if, if we're going to have a guy who uses his company as a front, essentially, to build his Batman gadgets and persona and all that kind of stuff, he's got to have a way to hide it real well. And what better way to hide it than a, than a company that's publicly owned by a small number of people but is out there? You know, I mean, it was, it was a really neat element. It also allowed you to get Fox into place where you knew he, ha- he could have more power in the, in the coming films. It was really cool. Yeah, I like this scene as well. It was nice. You know, even though... Uh, Mr. Earl is, is really just a businessman doing his job, trying to make a bank, you know, by selling the company and whatnot. It was, you kind of wanted him gone. So it was nice to see him get his comeuppance in the end there. And, and I really enjoyed the way that they did it with Bruce basically saying, yeah, I, I own the majority of the company. I bought it through the public options. <laughs> I just thought that was, that was a smart way to do it. You know, yeah, I went out and I bought it. Whatever. Yeah, I went. I went. I went and bought my family's own company back. You know, and, and it was smart. It was you know, who again, Batman's got intellect and he's got money, or Bruce Wayne's got intellect, and he's got money. That's how he can do it. 
Well, as we said at the very beginning, he is the thinking man's superhero. That's a good, good point again, Anna. He is the thinking man's superhero. And at the end, he's walking around the ruins of Wayne Manor with uh, uh, Alfred, and they're talking about how they're going to rebuild it, you know, brick by brick and all this stuff. And they, they're talking about modifications in the southwest corner, which is essentially where the Batcave is. And Rachel is there with him. And, you know, they basically, she, you know, they, they talk about the fact that they care for each other, and she, you know, knows she... She can't reconcile him being Batman. And they have this conversation about, you know, a day will come when the city won't need Batman anymore. And, you know, they kind of say, well, we'll, we'll, you know, make it work then. And the last scene is what is so great. It's such a great setup. Gordon, who's now a lieutenant, builds the bat signal <laughs> on his own. He builds that big, you know, uh, spotlight and he throws it out there. And then here comes the old Batman. And they had this great conversation, and he says, you know, we've got this guy that uh, we want you to check out and all this stuff. But I, I love the scene before that where he says, you know, I never thanked you. And and Bruce and Batman turns around to him and says, and you'll never have to. You know, that idea that they're going to have this unspoken respect for each other from then on, and that's going to be his his contact and the person he can work with inside of the, the department. And, and Gordon even tells him, you know, half the department thinks we need to arrest you, then there's the other half of us that are, you know, really need you on our side, and you know, we've got something that someone who uh, specializes in your kind of crime or your kind of stuff, and he unveils the Joker card on him, and he's like, uh, "You know, I'll I'll check out check it out for you." And then he disappears. I I, I love the ending of this because it just it leaves you wanting so much more. Yes, it, it does, and it sets it up, it sets it up very well for a sequel. You know who's going to be you know there's going to be a sequel because you want to see more and you know who's going to be in the sequel and I think it's good that in the next one they bring a more well-known or A-list villain in because we've established Batman. We've established how he began, we've established who he is and what he does for Gotham then now it's time to bring in a big gun. I love this ending too, and I love it a lot. A lot of the reason is because, hey, this movie is two and a half hours long, and when you're done with it, you want more. How many movies can you say that are two and a half hours long that end and you want it to keep going? It's hard to do, and this movie accomplishes that. And I, I like that they they do tell you right off the bat, hey, we're going to come back, and our next villain that we're facing is the Joker, and that gets people excited because. Everybody knows the Joker and Batman. So when you get this whole movie that's just awed you and amazed you as you watch it, and then all of a sudden like, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, the Joker will be in the next one. You're just like, oh, you know. Yeah, it's, it's the it's the ultimate payoff for that, that fan service all the way. Before we get to the characters, I have a couple nitpicky things. First off, remember we were talking about in the first Batman, and it drove me nuts since I was 10, the whole time frame thing? The whole thing, like, are they in the 30s, are they in the 50s, are they in the 80s? Whatever. Okay, well, this reared its ugly head in this one. First off, it was Alfred, when they're coming back on the plane from Asia, saying, when, um, um, well, during the Depression, your dad almost bankrupted the company. So, okay, were his parents, like, 60 when they had them or something? Because they didn't look 60 when they got shot. And then the other thing that got on my nerves is, you know, we also had the discussion, where is Gotham? Is it New York? Is it Chicago? Well, Alfred, first off, at the very beginning, young Bruce and young Rachel find an arrowhead, which I do not think you would find in Chicago or in New York. Secondly, um, when they're going through the Batcave, Alfred makes a comment that um, 
that your great great grandfather used to house slaves, freed slaves till they got to the north. So then that indicates it's in the south somewhere. So anyway, this was just some nitpicky stuff that drove me nuts in the movie, and I just had to throw it out there. About the Arrowhead, you would find those in Chicago and New York. Um, you wouldn't find them in New York City, but well, yeah, you could, but you'd have to dig up New York City. But you would find them in upstate New York and things like that in Chicago. So you might find them like if Wayne Manor were Connecticut or upstate New York and they look like a train in or something, right? Is what you're saying? Potentially, yes. But I think that, uh, Jay, you and I got into this conversation too while we were watching this. And we came up with, with one city that would meet the criteria, and that was Washington, D.C. It's on the border of the north and the south. The Underground Railroad would, would have probably gone through there, which is what they said that the, the Underground Railroad great-great-grandfather helped bring slaves to the Underground Railroad that ran through Bruce Manor or whatever. And so that would work for that. It's a corrupt city. I mean, we all know that through our politicians and everything else that goes on there, you know, there's a lot of dirty deals that go on in, in, in Washington, D.C. It's full of crime. So, I mean, to, to me, Washington, D.C. fits the persona of what Gotham would be. It's big city, lots of crime, lots of corruption, uh, fits in the category of the South. Definitely would find Indian relics there on some of the outskirts, Virginia and, and all that area, because let's face it, they were there before we were. So I think that, that is the best city to fit in. Well, well, I, I, I'm going to tell you guys this. I watched the second disc of Special Features, and Christopher Nolan straight up says this is... He thinks Gotham is a fictional place. Now, obviously, he said Gotham is an amalgam of multiple places. And he said, and we, we took stuff from Tokyo, from Chicago, and New York. He said, but I'll tell you now, I've always thought Gotham was New York City, and that everything else was Connecticut and the surrounding area. And so he he's playing it like it's New York, but it, you make good points, and I, and Brian, I agree with you. This this could be Washington D.C. very easily. All right, it it really could, but they're playing it like it's New York. And I had the same questions you did about the timeline, though. And I asked Brian this. I said, "So is this 1965 in like Alternateville?" You know, and Rachel also wears clothes that are not invented in the 60s. Yeah. Yeah, but Rachel's got a cell phone. I know. Uh, yeah, it, it again. Th- this is a mixed bag of time and and technology. And I think what what they're playing with there is that's a plot element that is a big part of the Batman world. Is when is this thing? You know, I've, I have said in the last four, I felt like we're borrowing stuff from the Roger Rabbit, you know, scenery, especially in the first film. I mean, it all looked like they just went and borrowed costumes from, you know, the Roger Rabbit film to, to shoot some of that stuff with the bad guys because you got 30s-style gangsters with 80s-style technology or 90s technology in the 80s, and people talk like it's the 50s, and it's you don't know when any of it is. I didn't know when this movie was either, but... I, I thought they did a good job of just letting you know that all this stuff is out there, but that's not really what we're focusing on. We're talking about character, you know. Yes, but I just want in twenty years when they do another <laughs> reboot, yeah. I just want. I hope someone 
somewhere who has any power has listened to this podcast and maybe many others, and they will get a correct timeline. Like if Bruce Wayne's parents were in the 20s and 30s, then it takes place in the 50s. If not, then move them up. And it's like this, just get the time, you know, get the, and I bet a lot of this does go back to the comic book because wasn't the comic book first written in like the 30s or 40s or something? It was in the 40s. So, you know, it's been in multiple iterations. It's lasted through history. So that's part of that. I think part of that's an homage to it is that it is something that could fit in a lot of time periods. So I just want, I just would like them to get it straight because it's just, it's just nitpicking. It's like saying, you know, it's like saying in Sex in the City they all met in the '60s or something. I mean, it's just drive. It's it's just driving me nuts. And while this is movie is so good and such a good incarnation of the Batman series and a good franchise reboot, it's just I noticed that one thing and I was like, ah, they can't get it right. Never. Well, let's let, let's talk about the characters in this for a little bit, okay? And and the obvious place to start with in terms of comparison and just the character stuff is is Bruce and Batman in this film. And we've talked a lot about this person, so we can wrap this up pretty quickly. Uh, but we've talked a lot about him through this, but compare this to our previous iterations of, of Batman and of Keaton, Kilmer and Clooney and now Bale. Well, I think Christian Bale's the best one by far, even though I have kind of a nostalgic thing for Michael Keaton because it's the first Batman I saw um, and stuff. But I do think like, like you said, he's so delightfully arrogant or delightfully just so smart alecky and stuff. It's just, he's good pulling that he can pull that off but he can pull the batman off and it's the batman character off and i think another thing about christian bale that we didn't see in michael keaton maybe we saw this a little bit in val kilmer but not as much and we definitely didn't see clooney is that it's believable he can fight like that it's believable he can do all this i don't know if it's the way he looks like he looks athletic but I believe that he can, you know, you he can do all this physical stuff. I think he's very believable. I think that you hit it on the head quite well in that Batman in this version is believable. Now, I, I've seen Keaton, I've seen Kilmer, and thank God I've never seen George Clooney as Batman. But all those guys were just kind of like they were there as Batman. This guy reminds me of someone who could actually go out and make this person real, you know. Uh, I believe that someone with the training that he's had or someone in like a military person could actually become a Batman in this sense because he's more realistic to me than your Michael Keaton version and whatnot. He, you, I've seen how he trained to become the way he is. I've seen how he built all the, the mechanisms he's using. And I've seen how he sometimes makes mistakes. And I like that about this version of Batman, and it's much better to me. But even though I love the Batman voice and think Christian Bale's a good actor, I thought I just love the scenes when he's the obnoxious billionaire playboy as Bruce Wayne. Yeah. I just, when he's a smart aleck, I just love those scenes. He plays those scenes so well, and I just love them. Yeah, and I'm, I'm with you. I, he was so delightfully obnoxious, and it was just fun to watch. Yeah, it's it's much more real. I mean, he gets beat up some of this, and they they keep playing with the fact that he's kind of beat up, and that he has to sort of get over that and still be this uh, this other well, and persona. He, and too. he has bruises. Yeah, yeah, he actually has bruises. Yeah. 
What did you make of the way Lieutenant Gordon worked? And we can talk about Gordon and Alfred and Fox kind of in the same pile because they're sort of the, the side men to help Batman out. But I, I've said already that I loved Gary Oldman and the way he played Gordon and that they, they gave Gordon stuff to do in this. And it's not because Pat Hingle didn't do it right in the, the previous four films. I just didn't give him anything really to do beyond the first movie. I liked how he portrayed Gordon as a very honest cop that was that was a, surrounded by corruption, but is just trying to do the right thing. You know? I, I think it's wrong to compare him to the um, Pat Hingle, the Gordon in the uh, previous movies, because all, like you said, all he did in the previous movies was stand there by the bat signal and go, okay. And I think the most he had to do was when he introduced Chase Meridian to Batman in Batman Forever. I think. That's the most he had to do. So I take these as two different characters. Like, this one has more to do. And we get a beginning of, quote-unquote, Commissioner Gordon, just like we're getting a beginning of the Batman, which I think was really cool to do. I like the fact that uh, this is your your cop who is surrounded by corruption, knows who's being corrupt, and yet refuses to join in even though he could very easily do that. And I like that part of his character. And I I like that he's open to this vigilante superhero of Batman trying to help him out and, and is willing to do that because he's seen enough of the corruption and he wants his city back. And I like that whole aspect of, of Commissioner Gordon in this film. Yeah, you got the idea that Gordon was a guy that grew up in the city and he was he was a product of it and he wanted it back the way it was supposed to be or wanted it to be better than it was for his kids it was it was a very real element it, it, I, I think we've all praised michael kane's performance as alfred i liked him and nothing against michael go uh, michael kane i think is just a different kind of actor and he brings a different presence on the screen you know this guy can just be he can be funny, he can be charming, but he can also be forceful and fatherly and all the things that Bruce needs. I mean, he's such a good Alfred Pennyworth. You, you really like him. Well, one of the most um, poignant scenes I thought, and I believe it's when the Scarecrow gave him the hallucinogen, and out he calls Alfred to come get him because he can't drive, and he's in the back, like, reliving his parents parents death and out you see alfred just crying as he's driving but he's trying not to let you know he's trying not to let bruce know he's upset and in that scene i i really felt i felt sorry for alfred and i realized that he really cares for bruce like bruce were his own child and he really does and i thought that i thought michael king just did an awesome job with that and it was it was wonderful and as far as michael go and the tim i liked michael go in the tim burton versions but as i said before just like michael kane has a relationship with christopher nolan um michael go has a relationship with tim burton and i think that was something that really because you could see a disconnect in michael go between to me between batman forever and batman and robin than the ones burton did and i think i i, I think that um and i can i think that that helps i don't know if that helps that much i don't know if anybody could come in and do it but i just think it's kind of weird that Michael Goh had this relationship with Tim Burton, and Michael Caine has this relationship with Christopher Nolan, and they're both played Alfred. I just found that kind of weird, or coincidental. 
Um, I don't have a whole lot of background on the Michael Go character, but from my recollection, he just seemed like more of a butler than anything. And in this version, he's more involved. Well, and and to be fair, that's part of that relationship. Michael Caine got some liberty to sort of go different places with the Alfred character. And he, he kind of invented his own backstory to Alfred, which was really cool. It worked a lot better. But yeah, you're right. There, there's a reason he just came off as the butler, because that's really all he is. Well, see, I didn't get that in the first Batman because there's a scene in the first Batman when um, Batman and Vicky are on a date at Bruce at um, Wayne Manor. They're in the kit. They're at this big long table in the dining room that probably sits like forty people, and it's just them at each end. And she's like, "Could you pass me the salt?" And Michael Bruce Wayne's like, "Okay," and has to take the salt and walk it down to her and walk it back. She's like, "Is there somewhere else we can eat?" And so they go in the kitchen and eat with Alfred. And this is the only scene in the whole series, I'll say, versus Michael Caine has a ton um, where he's he's. He's sitting there joking with them, telling them about Bruce, telling her about Bruce as a little kid like a parent would do. And I think that's the only scene in the whole series of the four where you see that he may be a little bit more than just a than just a butler. I do want to talk about Rachel here because she's something that's not in anything else. She's invented for this film as a lifelong friend somewhat love interest she's also a tie to the legal community for bruce let's talk about katie holmes as rachel doss first first we got to talk about the rachel character and then we can get into katie holmes i like the rachel character i like the idea that he would have had this friend that was there his whole life that knew him who didn't come up the way he did but they maybe were school chums or whatever and they were kind of you know First boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, you know, but she's also a, a connection to reality for him. And she's the one that really snaps him into, you You need to come off your ivory tower there, Bruce, and realize where this city's going and what's happening around here. And ultimately, she's a big part of his plans and stuff. So what did y'all think of the Rachel character? Like you said, I like the idea of the Rachel character. I like, and she, and maybe it's just time versus this isn't 1989 or 1992. She's a very strong female character, and I think that's good in this, in this film. But I like the idea of the Rachel character. I like the Rachel character, too. I thought I didn't know that she wasn't ever part of the whole Batman mythos, but I actually thought it was a good thing for the movie and kind of really played a role of keeping Bruce level-headed. Yeah, I think that's her whole purpose there is to keep him level, but to also be, again, that multi-role thing. And I think you brought a good point there, Anna. She's a strong female character, so it's a, it's a different thing than what we've seen in the Batman films. I mean, let's face it, the female characters in this thing have, have gone from somewhat journalistic, professional women to just straight-up arm candy by the end of it. So, uh, or the, the first four. Yeah, I was going to say, if you go through them like we made a mention in the original Batman one, all Vicky did was scream. Like, every line she had was a scream. And then we had Catwoman, and then we had Chase Meridian, and at the end we had, basically, he didn't have a love interest. He just had Elle McPherson on his arm. So, I mean, yeah, it it was, I liked the idea of the character, but I hated that Katie Holmes played her. I'm going to tell you right now, I could, I, I like some of the stuff Katie Holmes has done in her career, okay? 
I will tell you this, though. She was wrong for this. Even though she has some good moments, and she does a pretty good job of slapping the snot out of Christian Bale in the car. I mean, that was that like it was real. Um, <laughs> yeah, but she looked like my four-year-old slapping a kid in her daycare class. She I was going to say, it's hard for me to buy her as an assistant district attorney. Because I have friends I went to high school with who are ADAs, okay? I, and they carry themselves and look and talk in a different way than she does, just as a person. And I, I had a hard time buying Katie Holmes in this. I Like, if you'd have put, stuck somebody like Lauren Graham in that, um, or, you know, you can name off a dozen you know young actresses or whatever that could have played that, and I think could have worked it. I had a hard time buying her, but I liked the character enough that I could get over it. I actually think um, better besides Lauren Graham and Girl Who Daughter and Gilmore age appropriate. And I think she could have pulled it off better. But it made me have a whole new appreciation for Maggie Gyllenhaal when I watched this again. Because this is the first time I've watched it since I've seen The Dark Knight. And I and when I first saw Maggie Gyllenhaal, I'm like, I don't know, maybe Katie Holmes did a little better. But after seeing this, I'm like, no, no, yeah, no. You kind of no. wish they'd had her both ways. Brian, did you, you have any thoughts on Katie Holmes? Um, you guys are going to hate me, but I like Katie Holmes a hundred times more than Maggie Gyllenhaal. I can't stand Maggie (laughs) Gyllenhaal in this as, as, as Rachel. I hated Maggie Gyllenhaal as Rachel. I like Katie Holmes as Rachel. I I don't mind Katie Holmes. Yeah, she's married to a doofus, but aside from that, I, I don't mind her. All right, let's talk about the villains for a bit. Anna, you made a good point that, you know, these are not the, necessarily the A-list villains, but Falcone... Crane, Scarecrow, and Ra's al Ghul as a set of villains. I loved how their stories were intertwined, how they tied together. I loved the performances, too. I thought Tom Wilkinson was great as Falcone. Uh, Cillian Murphy, I've already praised him as Crane. And, and uh, Liam Neeson, I mean, is just you can get that guy to read, you know, how to cook instant potatoes to me, and I would I would go for it, okay? I, I, I am all in on Liam Neeson. Like I said before, these aren't well-known characters, but they didn't need to be because this movie is about Batman. I do, like you say, like how they intertwined each other, and it made and, and you didn't really. And the other thing I liked about it is you didn't know it at first. And, you know, in the first third of this movie or half of this movie, you're thinking they're three separate villains, and then you have the have the Scarecrow basically going to Falcone. Um, Falcone's like, I need another favor. And he's like, well, my, I really don't like doing favors and stuff like that when they're trying to get rid of Rachel. And then at the end, you realize that it's Roz, too. So I think I really, I actually really like these villains. I thought they were re- really good. And this is a good way of how to take a not so well known or maybe C list villain and make a good movie or make a good script and make it a A list movie. I thought these were great villains. I, I really enjoyed that. I didn't catch the whole thing with, there were clues, obviously, with uh, Scarecrow saying, you know, you know who I work for. You don't want him coming here, things like that. But I never really caught on to it until the end either. But it's, I thought it was awesome when it all tied back into the same group. I didn't expect to see Liam Neeson's character coming back. So that was a nice surprise, too. And to me, these all three of these villains worked really well. That was this big surprise for me, too. I didn't expect him to come back. I remember when that happened in the theater, and I thought, oh, this movie just, just went to a whole nother level. 
uh, you know, for, for me. And it, it, it was really smart. Again, it's just such a smart film. We've gone through just about everything we can in this film, except for the way we end these podcasts. And of course, you know, we give our play recommendations. So, Anna, what's your play recommendation for Batman Begins? Well, I have two parts to my play recommendation. I think if you're into the comic books and you're into the whole Batman thing, then this is a continuous play. Play it over and over because it's it's got most of it's very true to the comic book from what you've said and what's not is just really good plot devices because it has a really good script and it has really good acting and for a superhero movie it has awesome acting and I I think that it's a continuous play. Now if you're like me and you don't know anything about the comic books and you don't care to know then it's a once play because it's very dark, very psychological, and I think sometimes it might it might it might be a little too dark. So if you're faint of heart and you really aren't into comic book stuff, it's at least worth seeing once. And maybe if you see it once, you might play it again. But it's always at least worth seeing once. I didn't get into the comics or any of that either. So for me, this is definitely a, a continuous play and this is just a all-around good movie whether you know anything about batman or not and i think jay when we talked i said i said to you this is how you take a comic book and you make an awesome movie out of it instead of going all campy and doing all this bogus stuff that that you get in most comic book stuff this is how you take one and you make it into something so good that you want to watch it again. And regardless of if you have a Batman history or know anything about Batman or not, this is just so good a movie that you'd want to see it again. You know, I, I, Brian, you and I share the same thing. They get everything right in this one. They take stuff that, that if you're a comic book fan, you get payoff in it here, but you don't need any of it to enjoy this. This is just a great action adventure film. It's a great escapism. You, you said it, Brian. This thing's two hours and 20 minutes long. And at no point did I ever want to know when is this going to end. You know, I think I said in the Batman Returns podcast that I checked the DVD counter at least five times to see when it was going to get anywhere or when is this going to end. I wanted more when this ended. This is as continuous play as it gets, and I'm going to go further. Hey, you got to own this one, folks. And I'll tell you right now, I bought the two-disc special edition I own for five bucks. I mean, you can find it out there. Okay, It's been out for a while. This one's one to watch. If you're Whether you're a comic book fan or not, whether you're into Batman or not, this is a good, fun ride of a film. Now, I'll say this, and Anna makes a good point. This is not for the same crowd that, like, Batman was made for with the younger kids and, like, Batman Forever and Batman Robin especially was made for. It is not for that. I think you got to have kids that are a little bit older and can understand what's real and what's not to enjoy this because it's definitely dark and it's got some elements in it. But it, it's very, very good. It's exactly how this kind of film should be done. This is continuous play all the way. want to thank you folks for joining us on our Continuous Play Batman Retrospective Series. Check out our website, ContinuousPlayPodcast.com, for other episodes in this series as well as our other podcast series. For Brian and Anna, I'm Jay. Thanks for tuning in to Continuous Play. Thank you for listening to Continuous Play's Batman Franchise Retrospective. Continuous Play and ContinuousPlayPodcast.com is not affiliated with any movie, television, book, music, or publishing-related company. Any discussion of the plots, characters, or music from the films is done so for entertainment purposes only, and all rights are reserved. 
please visit our website at www.continuousplaypodcast.com for other series and feel free to leave us a comment.